Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible class. This Sunday we talked about the Gospels and how we could get through the Gospels in 20 minutes. Tonight we're going to try to get through the letters of the New Testament. And we're going to try to do that in 20 minutes. So we're going to give it our best shot. I don't know if you've noticed, but various churches have special verses that they love to use. If you've watched the men on the football fields, there's always that one guy in back of the end zone that holds up John 3.16. And we have ours. It became kind of obvious to us when I was a freshman in college. I was on the debate team. And we were headed for a debate in Kentucky. As we headed north, we noticed this big van. And on the side of it, it had the name of a, a Christian college that was Church of Christ. And we were sitting in a big white van with nothing on it. So if you have a van full of girls, and then you have a white van full of boys, it was a natural thing to try to get their attention. We, for a while, would just wave through the windows, and they would wave back. And then somebody came up with the bright idea of writing down some things on a sign and holding it up and letting them read it. We started out by saying, get off on the next rest stop, and we'll stop and talk. And the girls found some cardboard and held up the sign that said, get lost. We held up a sign that said, no, no, we really want to know you. You're interested. And we threw our compliments up on the board. And the girls wrote back, we've heard it all before. Then we wrote back, we're really nice guys. And she wrote, they wrote back, you look like a bunch of losers. But then sort of the captain of the team, Rodney, wrote Acts 2.38 and slapped it up on the window. The girls waved, and as we approached the rest stop, their blinker went on, and our blinker went on right after. They were delightful people. And I can remember during the debate, if we would see each other somewhere in the hallways headed for our next debate, we'd just yell out, Acts 238, and they'd yell it back. But that's how we got to know people we didn't know. That brought us to our first question of the night. If you had a pen pal, how would you introduce yourself to them? We had to write a definition of a pen pal because pen pals aren't part of it anymore. It's part of my generation, not the younger generation. Doug Hunter wrote this. A long time ago, I received an email from the mysterious Love My Lab. 
if you're interested in making a new Christian friend, then feel free to contact me. Have a great week. It would take another two months to find out her real name and two more to learn how to pronounce it correctly. It varies by locale. We've been married 20 years. I've had a couple kids, but it all started with that introduction. Then Sushume said, do y'all remember how you introduced yourselves? And Doug says, uh, no, but I do remember how I introduced myself to Taylor's future husband, Alex. He asked, what do you do, Mr. Doug? Rather than telling him how I earn a living or giving him my standard answer, lumberjack, I gave him a 10 to 15 minute narrative that introduced the Jesus van, coaching soccer, eating fast food Chinese just for the fortune cookie, catching sunrises, loving my wife and kids, etc. And thus began the hashtag name. This is what I do, Alex. Now Camille came on after Doug and she wrote, Doug and I met just like he said. I sent an email asking if he wanted a Christian friend. From there, we just emailed about our lives, similarities in schooling and church life. We both thought each other lived too far away to date for real. So we were just two friends getting to know each other. And then Doug wrote this. I loved you before I met you. I like that. Jackie Hall Smith writes, I heard about writing letters to soldiers that were serving in other countries. I started the letter with, hi, my name is Jackie. And I told my soldier about myself. I was amazed to get an answer from a soldier in Bosnia. We corresponded even after he made it back to the States. Eventually, the letters became longer intervals and it ended. I've always wondered what dreams he had of becoming a helicopter pilot. Was that ever going to come true? I wish we still had the Write a Soldier program. Angela Harvey writes, email, not pen, pal. I've had many pen pals before the internet or email sent Christmas cards to soldiers overseas. Then she follows it up after Sue Shumay writes, if you were emailing or writing someone today, how would you introduce yourself? And she writes, I would just start there as high there, I'm a friend that you haven't met. And Jackie Smith writes, I did the same before, hi, I'm their name, I'm Jackie. Good things, good things with good memories. We looked at Sunday with this being our end scripture where Jesus is getting ready to go back to heaven. And he calls the disciples up on a hill. 
And he says to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I surely am with you always to the very end of the age. Do you see the partnership? I want my people to go out and teach and baptize and then learn everything that I've taught them to a second group who will go out and teach. In Acts chapter 1, 3 through 5, Jesus has been resurrected for 40 days. And on this occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, and which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's a partnership with a second part of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. Now, couldn't God have done all the evangelism himself? Couldn't he have written something down that was so persuasive that the average person would have understood it and followed it? But God didn't. Couldn't he have just sent a vision of the two possible places people will go after death? You know, show them heaven and how nice it is. And then show them the other place. He could have, but he didn't. God chose 11 men to partner with him to teach others who would then teach others and so on and so forth until the gospel reached their entire known world. You see, it's a partnership partnership of us and God together. The Holy Spirit and the Son are there, but the three of us, those three and us, we have a partnership that will always be to the end of the age. So, our second question is, what do you do Leave something up to God. What do you do just when you leave something up to God and you do nothing? Cindy Foreman writes, I'll get it here. Okay. Cindy Foreman writes, this is an area I struggle with. I would say when the situation is completely out of my control and there's nothing I can do except to turn it over to God. But then I'll try to tell God how I think she should handle the situation. So even then, I guess I still have some control. Camille Hunter writes, I'm right there with you, Cindy. And Kim Davis Thornton writes, 
when I don't know what to say or do for someone. In the Bible, we all have favorite passages, and this is one of mine for the partnership. They've been in Jerusalem for a while, and now they have a congregation that is a distance from them named Antioch. One day, one prophet came down to Antioch, and he stood up, and he predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire world. Can you imagine that kind of clamor that would have started? The whole world, the Roman world, the only world they knew, was going to go through a famine. The disciples decided what they needed to do was come up with a plan. And the plan was that each disciple, according to his ability, would decide to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. And they did, by sending their gifts to the elders and the designated people in charge, Paul and Barnabas. But please notice what they didn't do. They didn't talk about how this could be punishment from God and ask God, why is he punishing me? They didn't blame the famine on too much sin that has started in the Roman world. They didn't look at it as a sign of the end, that it was near. And they didn't ask God why he let this happen. They came up with a plan. They talked about the repercussions of the famine, and they decided the best way to handle it. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. It was their plan, and their plan worked very well. You see, the Jerusalem church was extremely poor. On the day of Pentecost, they had repented of their sins and been baptized for the remission of those sins. That's Acts 2.38, our verse that we sent over to the church van. And they knew when they became Christians, they would not be welcome back at home. You see, their parents and their officials would consider them as true followers of Jesus to betray the Jewish religion. They would say they weren't true Hebrews. And these people that became Christians were willing to, to pay that price. They'd lose their family businesses back home, and that's the way most people got their money. So they are without anything, and it's tough. This is where all those verses 
come from, about helping each other, that partnership we started talking about. In 2 Corinthians 8, now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace God gave Macedonian churches out of the severe trial, their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their own ability, entirely on their own. They did that according to verse 5 because they first gave themselves to the Lord. See the partnership coming back? In chapter 9, he talks about those who sow sparingly will reap sparingly. Those who sow generously will reap generously. And each should give up whatever he decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or because somebody told him they had to. But because of this partnership, God gave to them. And he looked for them to give to him. This supplying of needs to God's people would lead in thanks to God. Because what they did was seen by many. And their generosity became a sign to the world. And then over in 1 John chapter 3, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? You see, we are followers of Jesus who laid his life down for us. So we are in that partnership with others who have followed Jesus. And Jesus laid his life down for them too. We can't neglect it. Now this gives us a chance, just a chance, to hit and go on Romans 8. Romans 8 is into three different stages. The earth or the world we live in, it says it's groaning in pain. Second, the church itself is groaning. And third, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are groaning. So give us some examples of when people groan, such as people who lose their job. Cindy Foreman writes, the first thing came to my mind aren't major things like job loss. I think about things like my plans got ruined, gas prices are going up, or when I get home from running errands, I realize I've forgotten something important. Doug Hunter writes, Chuck White's puns. And Wanda Bauer writes, when I forget to pick up a prescription. The reason I want you to go is because we have a lot of groaning today. People have lost their jobs and they're in danger of not being able to pay their rent or house payments. Some families are running out of food. And even though it's bad for adults, when it's your children who aren't eating, it hurts. 
businesses that have taken generations to build up are closing their doors because of bankruptcy. Marriages fail. And on top of it all, we have a pandemic where people get sick and some die. You see, the Bible is our our understanding. So what is your favorite... What is your favorite translation? I don't have that one. It's okay. We'll get to it in a second. There's a lot going on in our world, and it isn't good. And it's causing groaning. That's why this scripture needs to be kept in context. When you look at Romans 8, 28, and you say, we know that all things work together for good to those who love him and have been called according to his purpose, we sort of pun our responsibility. It's up to God to make this work out in my life, and it'll be good for me. Just sit back. God's got this. But... The Bible was written in the Greek language. And for a while, the way the Bible came down to us were manuscripts were written, and then they were copied, and then they were copied, and then they were copied. And there was a group of people that are called the manuscript people because they think the, most, the more manuscripts you have, the better. The trouble with this, the King James Version is based on this many translations, many manuscripts. They wrote the standard bearer for a long time when it came to Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and to them who are called according to his purpose. Now that's probably pretty familiar. The Revised Standard wrote this. We know that in everything, God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. With them. The NIV has looked at a marginal note. And what it's saying is, this could be a great translation. In all things good, God works together with those who love him to bring about good. You see, they had a change in the early 1800s. Two men named Westcott and Court decided what they needed to do was get the oldest transcripts. And the oldest transcripts had a change in wording. The word that they found later transcripts was the word, 
or gozomai. Oh, gozomai does mean to work. But when you got to the earlier transcripts, the oldest, the closest to the original, it changes the synagogues. And that means every time in every other place that it's translated, it means those who join in to the work. We are God's fellow workers. And we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. We're partners. And because we're partners, it makes all the difference in the world. Now having said that, I think translations of the Bible are pay your money, take your choice. It's what brings the Bible alive to you. It's what teaches the gospel to you. And as I've told some people, a Bible that is down, read, and studied is worth 103 on a shelf. Never bothered. So, we didn't make 20 minutes. But we're done for tonight. Thank you for being here. I'll see you again real soon.